You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. I'm your host, Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leafs fan. And joining me, as always, is Ricky Squid Vibe. Squid, how's it going? Oh, boy, I guess it's going pretty good, Mike. I've been uh, been like a media mogul or whatever you want to call it for about the last week. And, uh, you know, but that's what happens when you put a book out, I guess. Hey, listen, don't complain. At least you're getting out there and doing it. You're, <laughs> yeah. you're never going to be media out, believe me. You know, no, I find the, Well, let me ask you this. What's the most common question you keep getting asked by all these guys? You got a little bit of a sample size now. Um. I think mostly it's all about Harold. I get more <laughs> questions about Harold Ballard than anything else, uh, which is kind of strange. But but there's been other questions. But the the I'd say the common theme from everybody I've I've inter- been interviewed with, I think it's the Ballard thing. That's pretty funny. And, yeah, uh, Ballard always he's been gone. What? <laughs> 30, 40 uh, years, and he, we've still got 30 years. We're still going on about him, right? It's just unbelievable. Well, yeah, it's crazy. What, now, you must be getting some feedback on your book. What's the biggest surprise about people are coming to you at that they read about you in the book? I think probably, well, first and foremost, the biggest one was the fact that, uh, like, I grew up with anxiety and, and had anxiety throughout my entire career, and not until I first time quit drinking at 35 that I actually have trouble with it and had to go see a, a physician yep. and get, you know, some medication and stuff. Um, yeah, they, a lot of people were surprised at that. They had no idea. Of course, neither did I, cause they didn't diagnose me with it. Yeah. Even though I went through our doctors and everything. And, uh, I mean, I got through it with alcohol, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, I don't think, uh, I don't think anybody knew that that I had any, you know, including myself, because I was, they didn't diagnose me with it. Well, it's it's interesting that you mention that because our guest today, Chris Nyland, went through similar issues, and uh, yeah. he speaks openly about it today. And we're thrilled to have him on with us, and we'll certainly get to that part of the show. So uh, we're going to bring him on in a couple minutes. But Catch Twenty Two is the name of the book. Uh, it's available at all your outlets, Indigo and Amazon. I'm all right. I have a little bit of a plug for me, too. I mean, my book, The Ultimate Road Trip's out there, too. You can still get it at Indigo and uh, started, on Amazon as well. I started reading it two nights ago, mm-hmm. and I'm probably about 40 or 50 pages in. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's pretty cool. It's like, I mean, the people that you're meeting and, and uh, seeing on the road, it's really, really incredible. It really was something, you know, it was really, it just, and, and I mean, you're, you're on the ice, you can hear it, but being actually in the crowd with these people and then sharing their stories with you. And I'm telling you the emotions and, and it, and again, the people have to realize that it's, it's not just, my team just happened to be the Toronto Maple Leafs. It could be, you can put yourself in there and put any team in there and have the same sort of yeah. feeling following your team around. And that, that's the point I want to make about this whole. Well, the, the one thing that amazed me was, how in the heck ever, ever organized <laughs> While the made, girl in the other room. <laughs> and, and, and got to all the, the places on time to see the games. Like, I mean, you know, you think about weather, you think about all kinds of things. And I'm like, I, I can't believe he actually made it all to every single one. He wasn't late, wasn't delayed. And that to me was incredible. 
Yeah, it was. So, well, I had some big help, as you know, in the other room, you know. Oh, you yeah. Know her. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know all about that, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, I mean, well, hockey has been, uh, but that's great. So anyway, thanks for that. And I, I, and I hope people read it and enjoy it, but uh, you know, enjoy the journey as well, I like to say. Folks, while well, hockey's been on high, so, you know, it's not far from our thoughts. And we've decided to add a little bit of a new segment to our show because we get a lot of requests every week from people asking questions, sending us notes. And what we thought we'd do is we'd put a, designate a certain part to our show to people asking questions. Now today, Squid's, and this one, by the way, this one's unrehearsed, folks. So we're going to get Squid here right off the bat. And this is a good, this is a good one here. This is from a young lad by the name of, I'm going to read this one to you. My name is Jonah Thomas. No one on social media is tic-tac-toe-drag. My Instagram is tic-tac-toe-drag, and my YouTube is called tic-tac-toe-drag. I'm 13 years old, born in 2007, and played AAA hockey for the Toronto Red Wings. Now, he's got a couple of questions here for us today. Number one, do you have any tips for young hockey players trying to reach the next level? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, there's obviously you have to have a lot of drive. You got to really, really want what you're striving to get to. Um, I, I would say the biggest thing is, is practice harder than you play. Uh, make yourself better every practice. Uh, listen to, you know, your, your coaches and, and your teammates and, you know, try, I think just trying to get better every single day, every, every time you have a chance, whether, you know, if you're not practicing that day and uh, you're in the driveway stick handling on, on some uh, uh, plastic or something, you know, do it, do something every day to try and get better. And, and that doesn't mean you have to, uh, you know, live hockey 11 months or 12 months a year. It's just when you got a free moment and you get nothing going on, just, you know, go out and practice and uh, hone your skills and your shot. And, uh, you know, then I think uh, your chances increase probably by, I'm guessing, 15 to 60%. Well, the biggest thing, too, is conditioning. When you say in today's day with the way the players are, make sure you look after your body. Well, yeah, I mean, but we're talking about, you know, teenagers here who yeah. are all in pretty good shape and they – they're, they're active all the time. They're, they're, you know, it's a, for them, you know, getting on a bike and riding a bike really isn't that big a deal because they're on the ice a lot. They're playing other sports. So their conditioning would be fine. It's just a matter of, yeah, I mean, you can maybe get a little bit stronger, but I, I think honing your skills is more important than anything else. Perfect. Well, his second one here, I don't know, this might be a bit of a trick question for us because do we have any <laughs> tips for either from either of us for hockey influencers. I would say squid right off the bat. The question should be the way around. We should be asking Jonah, what do we have to do to get noticed like you? You have a big following on uh, all your social pages. It's us two old stiffs that probably need my help here. Well, that's, that's a problem, uh, Mike, right there, because uh, unfortunately all the influencers are probably 25 or younger. <laughs> and exactly. we, we don't fit in there. That's not us. Well, I would say that the biggest thing is, is to keep yourself out there, uh, be informative, don't overdo it. And, and just, if you've got something to say, say it, but always try and learn something yourself and share those experiences. And I think that's probably the best way to move forward. 
Number three, he asked his third question. We're giving him a three shot here for Jonah. Who is your, well, maybe I'll answer this or maybe not. Who, who is your favorite Maple Leaf player and why? Well, I'll, I'll take this one, I think. My favorite player growing up was Dave Keon because that was the guy, he seemed to be, not, they weren't all real big size in those days, but he was a regular size guy who moved around the ice, seemed to always have the puck, and he never stopped moving the whole time. And he just seemed to be one of those guys you caught your attention the minute he stepped on the ice. Well, for me, uh, my favorite leaf was George Armstrong, uh, mainly because he was a captain and uh, uh, indig indigenous uh, gentleman. And he always had a wonderful smile, you, when it, when, especially when he had the Stanley Cup in his hand. <laughs> and then I got to meet him later on in life when I uh, got drafted by the Toronto Marlboros. And uh, uh, he was a real gentleman and uh, uh, just... Uh, he, he, he was very quiet. He's a very quiet man, but uh, but a real pleasant guy to be around. Why well, he, he carried himself like a, like a true professional, yeah. the way you're supposed to be. I think that's that's what comes through loud and clear with him. That he does his job. It's just a job to him, and he does his job well, and he represents yeah. himself well, and he's proud of who he represents, meaning the Toronto Maple Leaf fan base and the Toronto Maple Leaf organization. And he's still yeah. like that today. Yeah, he is. He, he hasn't changed one bit. Well, that's so there you are. There's our there's our first guy. John, I want to thank you for sending that in to us. Um, anybody else, if you'd like to send us something, we'll try and get it to you or get you on the air. If you want to ask any kind of question, ask Rick or I or ask both of us. Mike at ultimateleastfan.com. Send it to that uh, email address, Mike at ultimateleastfan.com, and we'll try and get your question on the air. Now, Squid, here we are, the other part of our oh boy, we're really branching out and just full of content. Man, oh man, we're so good at this now. Did you know that on this date, November 28th, 1925, playing in his 328th straight game for the Montreal Canadiens, goaltender George Vesna collapsed during a one-nothing loss to the Pittsburgh or to the visiting Pittsburgh Pirates. It was the team's first meeting, suffering from tuberculosis. He died four months later. And today, wow. of course, the goalie award is named after him. Well, that's How something that? I didn't know. 328 straight games in net. That's unbelievable. Well, who, Glenn Hall was what? Yeah. 500 and something? I don't know what the exact number was, but it was a big number. But that's a lot. Without a mask, I mean, it's hard to fathom a guy playing 300 and some or 500 and some straight games without a mask. Yeah, I like, know. That is just, now, mind you, the sticks were much different then, and uh, so the shots probably weren't as hard. I, I don't believe they were allowed to raise a puck back then, were they? That's the day the era. They they had and they had a there was all kinds of different modifications to the game. So yeah, it was a little bit different. I'm not quite sure about that if that at that time or not, but you could be no right. No drop or uh, no forward passes and that sort of thing. But still, I, I don't care. I mean, you're still in the net. You're still in the net without a mask, so that that's impressive. Now, you just mentioned him, George Armstrong, on this date in 1970, became the first player in team history to score a goal in 20 straight seasons. He scored in his, his first goal of the season uh, in a 9-4 win over Detroit at Maple Leaf Gardens. But there you go, 20 years with at least well, this, one goal. Well, first of all, just playing 20 years that in was the, the NHL point. Is, is magnificent. That That is unbelievable that you, you played 20 years in the best – probably the best league in the world. And to be able to score a goal in every single one of the, those years, that's two decades. 
Yeah. And he scored a goal in every single season. So uh, that, that to me is pretty impressive. I'll tell you, those guys don't last 20 games, never mind 20 years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's... And I've seen it. And, uh, but I, I have seen some guys play till they're 40 or early 40s. And uh, not that many, though. I mean, I, I bet you, uh, if I was to gather a guess, I would say there's probably less than 50 guys that ever played over 40 years old in the NHL. Yeah, there wouldn't be. There's not a lot. I no. don't know that number myself, but there, there is, there's very few. Yeah. And uh, boy, oh boy, that's, that's, that's quite an accomplishment, that's for sure. Well, also, Squid, I wanted to point out, this is a shout-out from my old buddy, Billy Gardner. This is on this day in 1981. He scored the first goal of his NHL career. It was shorthanded, and it was against Calgary in a 4-4 tie. And I talked to him yesterday because uh, I wanted to get something from our guest today, but he also threw this, and he said he also didn't realize that, that Lanny McDonald had just been traded to Calgary a couple of days before. He stole the puck off Lanny, went on the breakaway, and scored. <laughs> So that's a pretty memorable goal. And Lanny, uh, how about that? How about now? I guess it must have been, how about being management sitting up in the press box watching that one thinking we just traded for oh my goodness, look what he just did. Yeah, but I think I think he uh he made up for it. I think he made up very, very well for that by uh scoring his five hundredth goal with the with the flames and also leading them to a Stanley Cup. So yeah, uh, and, and and the winner against uh in the Stanley Cup. Against Montreal, yeah. So well, and we'll, I, we'll I give him a break now. I will give him a break, I think, on that one. But <laughs> on, on the other note, I did ask Billy about our guest today. He said, is there anything you can tell me uh, playing against Chris uh, during your era? And he said, yeah, stay away from him. <laughs> so uh, I think that's something hey, that was probably good. the best advice he got in his career. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was a pretty hard-nosed player. And I think we should probably get to him right now and listen to what he has to say. So we'll, bring, we'll come up next with uh, Chris Nyland. Squid, our guest today is someone you played against throughout most of your career. He played 13 years, was one of those accommodating guys who'd play any way you chose. One of only nine players over 3,000 penalty minutes. That's 50 games, by the way, for those keeping score. Won a Stanley Cup with Montreal in 86. Named a Team USA for the 1987 Canada Cup. And was chosen for the 91 All-Star Game. And along with uh, speaking, a speaker now spending his time, he has his own show, uh, Off the Cuff with Chris Nyland. Now he has lots of players on, does what we kind of do, only probably a little higher level. And uh, speaks again, very seriously about uh, some of his addiction issues and is a real spokesman for that, much like yourself, Squid. Uh, we welcome to the show, Chris Nyland. Chris, how you doing? I'm good. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, great, great to join the, um, the Leaf Nation, if you will. <laughs> well, we like Nation, yeah. We like to cover it all. Now, listen, besides your show, how you keep him busy these days through all this pandemic? Well, like anybody, it's been difficult. You know, I, I just, uh, I, I've been trying to be as careful as possible. I actually think um, I had uh, this COVID thing back in uh, March. March, I went to drop the puck at the Quebec Pee Wee tournament. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the actually the end of February, very beginning of March. And I came home on a Sunday. I was there for about four days and um, I couldn't speak. When I get up in the morning, I had to cancel my show, uh, which is from noon to three every day. And then um, it took me two days till it's, it started to come back my voice, but I was congested for about three weeks. I'd never get sick. Um, and then not long after that, 
um, probably it took about a month after that. Slowly but surely, I started getting pain throughout my body. I had a hard time getting out of bed, couldn't walk, my shoulders, my knees, my hips, everything. And it turned out uh, I had this thing called uh, polymyalgic rheumatica. And it's something that attacks guys our age. Um, and it uh, usually, they not, they're not sure, but it comes on after you've had a virus. So that's why I thought I had this virus. And plus the congestion part of it. So they put me on prednisone and I've been on that now and I'm starting to come down from it a little bit, stepping me down, but they, they, you know, we play it by ear as to when I'm going to get off it because I, they stepped me down so low that some of the pain started coming back. So they bumped me back up to try and get me into a comfortable spot. But really that's what I've been doing. Uh, trying to stay connected uh, here with the whole hockey thing, uh, you know, and, and trying to stay connected with my family back in Boston, mm -hmm. which um, my parents are 85 years old, both my mom has dementia. So that's been difficult on my dad. And I just, I FaceTime them all the time and we talk and it's just, you know, I'm not the only one going through all this stuff. Uh, and, and the way I look at it, there's some people out there have it a hell of a lot worse than I do. So I, I got a lot to be grateful for. Fantastic. Well, we want to keep it people want to enlighten people a little bit where you came from to where you got to today. So, I mean, first off, though, we do, we're very fond of nicknames on this show. Now, you have one of the best, Knuckles. <laughs> I mean, it's got an obvious tone to it. Maybe explain who gave it to you and how'd you get it? Uh, a friend of mine, Jerry Dwyer. Now, how I met Jerry, uh, I was in college and um, Jerry was on the JV team and I was on the varsity team. And uh, one day after practice, I went up to sit in the stands because I had a couple of friends playing a college game after our practice. They were playing at Boston State College. And this kid come up, he was in the stands. Uh, he was sitting there and he'd come up and sat down. I struck up a conversation with him, blah, blah, blah. Uh, he told me he's from Rhode Island and I'm on the JV team at Northeast. We became very good friends. Now. You know how hockey is in like school, you know, JV and varsity guy. You don't hang around with them, them <laughs> JV guys. It'd be like NHLers hanging around with AHLers. So, but I became very good friends with him. And Jerry um, made the team the following year. And he, you know, I had, uh, I was still fighting off the ice. You know, you can't fight in college hockey. <laughs> but I was still fighting off the ice. I broke my hand in a fight off the ice. Um, I ended up getting another fight off the ice where I got my finger almost bit off. By, I fought three guys and one of them bit me so bad, I almost cut my finger off, but I ended up in the hospital uh, with a massive infection. And I was in there for about two weeks. Anyway, when I came back, Jerry gave me the nickname Knuckles and it stuck all the way through from college to my NHL days until my days here as a grandfather, <laughs> you know? Well, you know what? I think that's probably a, a, a pretty good nickname for you, Chris. And uh, I mean, cause you could use them pretty darn good on the ice, but you were also a guy that could score goals and, and play the goddamn game too. So it's not like, I, I know a lot of people like to talk to me and say, Oh, do you know? Yeah, we've met, we know each other and everything. And, and they said, well, boy, he was a one hell of a tough guy. And I said, yeah, but he could play too. 
Fill us yeah. in a little bit on your time in Montreal and, you know, what you went through. And, and uh, I know you scored 20 goals one year. Or, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, so. Well, um, I, I'm fortunate to have been drafted by the Canadians. And that was done uh, actually as a favor. Uh, a coach of mine uh, growing up was uh, named Judge Paul King. He's a judge in probably one of the uh, toughest areas of Boston. Um, he was a district court judge, chief justice, and he was suffering from arthritis. He was all hunched over. He had eight kids, and the judge used to leave the bench um, three nights a week and come down, and we would practice two nights, play a game a week. And um, he was an incredible human being. But Judge King saw something in me that nobody else did, and you know, believe me, I play with a whole lot better hockey players than I was. Uh, I could always play. I worked hard at it. I could always be a halfway decent player. I could hold my own, but I was no superstar. I never was, um, and I never will be because it's too late now. But, uh, you know, the judge saw something in me. He saw the drive, uh, and judge happened to be a very good friend of Dickie Moore, Hall of Famer with the Canadians, and Doug Harvey. And the judge met them in a bar outside the Boston Garden after a Habs-Bruins game. And he was having a couple of drinks, and uh, he approached Dickie, and they started talking. He said he's a lawyer. So Dickie started picking his brain about business and contracts and how you negotiate and all that stuff. So they became fast friends. Fast forward, the judge, uh, my draft year was the last year, 78 was the last 20-year-old draft. I was at Northeastern and the judge had talked to Dickie and Doug was scouting at the time and said, Hey, listen, Dickie, do me a favor. Uh, and I didn't find this out till the judge passed away, unfortunately, but the judge uh, said to Dickie, could you please just get the Canadians to draft Chris Nyland? And I guarantee you he'll do the rest. Now that was a story from Dickie Moore told me this and uh, Dickie went, Sure enough, he went to Sam Pollock and said, listen, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to drop this kid out of Northeastern. Um, and, you know, uh, Sam Pollock had um, Richard Scammell go down and watch me a couple times. Anyway, I happen to have a lot of penalty minutes in college. And um, anyway, and, you know, I scored my share of goals. I could play. And they drafted me. They drafted me um, at, um, you know, late in the later rounds, the 19th round, actually. 231 out of 235 <laughs> but all the same I was drafted and I can tell you, you you don't know how happy I was I was really naive about the NHL at that time so there wasn't a whole lot I knew about it but that just get my foot in the door going to camp getting sent to Halifax Bert Templeton was my coach first year and he didn't like college kids he didn't like American kids and I, I was warned ahead of time. But when I dropped my gloves, I was on a five-game tryout uh, with the V's for $200 a game. The first four games I did not play. And I went the first game in Maine, and I fought Glenn Cochran. I cut him open. Uh, we had a really good fight, but I gashed him good. And... Um, the next day, Templeton called me in my room and said, hey, uh, Chris, do you have a, um, do you have an agent? And, uh, he's, uh, 
I said, no, why? He said, well, the Montreal Canadiens, they want to sign you a contract. And um, he said, uh, you better get on the phone to them. They want to talk to you now. I'm there. Why? I have one fight, one fight. <laughs> and they wanted to sign me the contract. But I didn't realize the, I mean, I did realize the importance of that, but I, you know, I guess I was, like I said, I was naive and uh, I ended up having to find somebody um, uh, pretty quick. And I did uh, through Bob Yoa down in Boston. And he, uh, he set me up with a guy named Dan Ray and man, I had a contract the next day, two way deal of uh, uh, 18, no, 16, five, in the American League and 60,000 in the NHL. <laughs> and I felt like I, I died and gone to heaven. But again, I, it was, I started my career there, Halifax, fighting all the time. You know, I played 49 games, I had 304 minutes of penalties, fighting every night. And I had 15 goals and 10 assists. Really launched my um, uh, career to Montreal. I never realized that and I didn't realize that there were scouts there watching me every night, uh, which was kind of good because I didn't have a clue. I just, I didn't worry about, oh, someone's watching me tonight. I better be on my game. I didn't have a clue. And then I ended up getting called up and, you know, Claude Rell helped me immensely. The organization, um, they certainly welcomed me as a fighter, but they wanted me to be more than that. And they certainly supported me in that quest to become a full-time NHL uh, from um, from Bob Berry, uh, Claude Rell was really a big influence on me, and Jacques Lemaire. So yeah, I, it was a great organization to uh, end up getting drafted by, getting that opportunity. Uh, if not for the judge, I would have never got it. Um, and listen, I always wanted to be a Boston Bruin, um, so I hated the fact that the Canadians drafted me. But then again, I was happy. Well, I was going to say of all teams to get drafted by. I mean, you grew up, obviously, Boston is a big hockey area, and Bobby Orr was, I believe, a big influence in you growing up, and then you used him as uh, one of his guys as an agent. Playing college hockey, all of a sudden you go to the American Hockey League, and there was still the hangover effect from the botched bullies in Philadelphia, so fighting was still a very big part of the game. Wasn't the hangover effect. It was in full bloom. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. So how was that your first time through the circuit. I mean, remember you're coming from college where you weren't supposed to fight. Now you're going where it was just like every night. Well, you know, it came that part. Honestly, I say to people, they don't, they, they, I don't know if they don't want to believe me or they think I'm, I got a screw loose, but I, that was the easy part. Honestly, yeah. it was the yeah. easy part for me. Um, yeah. I, I fight anybody on a dime. It, that, that, the, the, I don't care. It, the, the hard part was to become a hockey player, a yeah. full-time NHL. And that's the thing I'm most proud of. Not the fighting, not 3,000 penalty minutes. Like I said, listen, was that difficult? Yeah, but it was a hell of a lot easier than becoming a full-time NHL. The fighting came natural to me, uh, came natural to me on the street. And then to apply it on the ice, I had to learn a few things, and I did quickly. Um, otherwise I wouldn't have lasted the 13 years I did. And, um, you know, I enjoyed that part of the game. Like, you know, I, I enjoyed, and I always have, I've been fiercely loyal to my family, friends, and my teammates, uh, that will never change. And I'm glad I was able to provide some of those people, 
uh, with some comfort at times and protection <laughs> um, when it was warranted or called for. So, yeah, I, I love that part. Well, now, what I, about your first? I, oh, I was going to ask you about your first game in Montreal. How did that, like playing much for Montreal, going back to Boston, your first game? What was that day like? And then what did that cost you for tickets? Well, my first uh, time against Boston was in Montreal. I fought uh, Jonathan and I fought O'Reilly, the second fight. And O'Reilly hit, uh, I did good against Jonathan. And then O'Reilly, I knew he was a lefty. And I said, screw it, I'm going to go toe to toe with him. And I hit him with two rights and he came back and dinged me with two, two lefts right in the button. The blood just poured out of my head. And I stayed on my feet and I hung in there and I went to the box and, you know, we had a few words, blah, blah, blah. And he showed me the left. Ah, you like that, huh? <laughs> and honestly, my, my, he was one of my childhood heroes, other than Bobby Orr. And, you know, it was, it, it, it was good to happen to me because and I remember that was a turning point so early in my career for me because I said to myself that night, I said, I can never, ever let that happen again. I have to, if I'm going to last in this league, um, all these bigger guys that are bigger than me, uh, been around, have fought in the ice for years, grown up. I said, I have to learn how to fight smarter. I got to be a more strategic fighter. Um, I got to fight the way I want to fight, not the way they want me to fight. And I got to take away the, their strength, try and take away their strength and then pick my way through the fight. And I think I did a pretty good job of that throughout my career. You know, I, I get it. Anybody can stand there and just throw them wild. But, you know, I, I always say a guy like PJ Stock, I give him all the credit in the world for doing what he did. And a good fighter, very good fighter, fight anybody. Um, but boy, his career was so short because of that. You know, if he fought smarter over the, his, his young career, uh, he could, could have had a longer career, and he didn't. Uh, and that's because he got hit so hard and hit so bad. Um, he had that eye injury to start in Boston, and then uh, it, it happened again in Philly. So, again, I, I had to learn how to be smart and strategic about the way I fought to last. Well, I'll tell you, it's funny you mentioned your draft, and I was drafted the, the following year, and I was fifth overall, and all I made was 60000 So, <laughs> So anyway, the prices were very low back then, and I uh, went on to make a little bit more than that later on. But speaking of Stan Jonathan, I had a similar uh, situation with him. It was one of my first NHL fights, and I don't know what happened. I, I mean – you know, I would be pretty stupid to fight Stan Jonathan. But yeah. we went into the boards and came off the board. Something happened. We both threw out the gloves. I grabbed them. I hit him right here with the three hardest punches I could throw. And he went, and yeah. I went, oh, no. <laughs> I just yeah. grabbed him. <laughs> and he came underneath with an uppercut, threw me down. Said, don't do that again, kid. And I said, I won't. <laughs> Well, listen, you fought him, but you had a warm-up before that and when you were in the WHA with the Baby Bulls with Sammy Semenko, right? Well, yeah, that was more of a sucker punch, but... But, yeah. Uh, you know, he suckered me, and then he grabbed me by the back of the sweater, hit me two more times, my gloves fell off, and we got five minutes each for fighting. Yeah, how'd that happen? <laughs> oh, boy. Anyway, but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I did a lot of fighting in the WHA, and even in my first 
few years of the NHL, and that was John Brophy instilled that in me. Yeah. You know, when, when I went to Birmingham, they had got rid of all the tough guys they had, and they, they kicked the hell out of everybody in the WHA the year before. The only guy really we had was Dave Hansen, and yeah. he couldn't take care of everything. So Brof called me in one day, and he said, you know, son, he said, uh, you're, you're doing well. Don't worry. You know, everything's good. He said, but, you know, you've got to stick up for yourself a little bit more because he said, if you don't, they're going to continue to pick on you and they're going to run you out of the league sooner or later. And I said, okay. I mean, I was always kind of a, uh, type of player. Like I didn't like getting beat on any play and I fought and whatever. And I said, okay, fine. And, uh, so I racked up 248 penalty minutes and four broken noses and God knows what go. else I broke, <laughs> but I scored 26 goals. So that was good. Yeah. As a, what, what were you? How old 19, were you? 19. 19. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Now, Chris, the early, you come from a hockey mecca area in Boston, yeah. and then you moved to Montreal, and you're playing finally with the big club. What was that like like for you? Did I mean, you knew that they were crazy for hockey, but it was just, just another whole level, and you're living there today. But they must have loved you in that city when you started to make some impact. Did you... Did you ever pay for a dinner or a drink or anything in that city anywhere you sure went? I did. <laughs> um, but, you know, when I think of my time, it was just awesome. I, I, I loved it. You know, it was just, uh, it was an awesome place to play hockey. Uh, I remember um, the year I got drafted, I stayed in school another year. I wanted to leave. My dad said, come on, I stay in school. Don't leave. What are your chances of making the Canadians? Look at them. Three Stanley Cups in a row going for their fourth. So I went with a buddy of mine, Franny Flaherty. Um, we went in to see the Bruins practice and the Canadians practice the morning of, I think it was game four that year. Uh, too many men in the ice year. And um, we went and watched the practice and we're in there. Franny said, why don't you ask them uh, somebody there with the team. If we can get tickets, we'll go to Montreal and watch game five. So I'm there. Yeah, well, he said, come on, go ahead. So I go in and I see Claude Rell. I didn't know who he was. I just knew he was with the team. He had an overcoat on. I went up, short little fat guy, one eye. He's standing against the wall, kind of bouncing back and forth on his feet. And uh, I went up to him. I said, hey, uh, sir, I know you're with the team. I said, I've been drafted by you guys. I'm wondering if I could get a couple tickets next um, game in Montreal. He said, oh, I don't do this. Uh, this man over here. Uh, and it was Irving Grumman's son, the general manager, Howard. He was a road secretary. So I go to Howard. I say, hey, listen, Howard, I'm drafted by you guys. I'd love to go to the next game in Montreal. And he said, what's your name? I said, my name's Chris Nyland. I play at Northeastern University here in Boston. He got out the goddamn book, yearbook, and he flipped through the back pages and he went through and he saw my name and he said, Oh, okay. Yeah. I'll leave you a couple tickets. Blah, blah, blah. And great. I'm excited as all hell. We leave the, uh, we watched the practice and we <clears throat> hung around for a while and we jump in the car and we, Franny had a big old 78 T-bird and uh, we look like a couple of wise guys from Boston, a couple of Irish guys looking to rob a bank or someone. Anyway, 
we come around the corner at the garden, there's Lafleur, Lemaire, and Lupian. And Franny says, why don't we see if they want to ride? We'll give them a ride to the hotel. So Franny calls up, say, you guys want to ride the hotel? And they look at each other and they go, you know, boom, sure. They jump in the back of the T-Bird. I'm in the front seat and we're talking. Franny says, yeah, we're going up the next game. We're going tonight, bah, bah, bah. You know, LaFleur said, you mind if I light up a cigarette? No, no problem. Have a butt. They all got Stanley Cup rings on. So I, cocky young bastard I was, I said, listen, hey, you guys. I said, I'm going to be with you guys. I'm going to be playing with you next year, right? And LeMann said, really? You're going to be playing with us? How are you going to do that? I said, well, I said, I was drafted by you guys uh, this year. He said, where do you play? I said, I play out Northeastern right here. I was drafted by you guys. He goes, what round were you drafted in? I said, 19. Well, the three of them near pissed themselves laughing. I, I, I just figured, you know, I got drafted, big deal. So what if you drafted in the first or the 19th? What's that mean? I, I just didn't have a clue. And they were laughing. I'm like, okay. I said, I'll see you guys next year. Anyway, we drop them off. I get to training camp the next year. Oh, no. We go up to the game, the next game. We get there. We, I go to the ticket window and say, can I have tickets for Chris Island? Sure, that'll be $320-something. I mean, what? I, I had to pay for the goddamn tickets, <laughs> which I couldn't believe. I was in shock. And uh, anyway, so we ended up paying for them. Franny threw them on his credit card. And then um, we, um, I show up to camp the next year. And sure enough, I'm in the locker room. And, you know, where they break you up in four teams, right, Rick? And yeah. you play the round robin, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I'm sitting there. Lafleur is on my team. And I'm shot my skate, uh, tight my skates. And he keeps looking over at me, looking at me. He sees me. He finally says, hey, it's you. You're the kid from Boston. He said, you said you were going to be here. I said, I told you I was going to be here. There's no word of a lie. I go out on the ice. We play the game. Who's against? I'm out in the faceoff. And Big Gilles Lupien's here. He's looking at me. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm in a fight already. I just got here. I, you know, I'm going to get a fight already. And he's looking at me. He's looking at me. He says, hey, Tabanak. He said, it's you, the kid from Boston. You said you're going to be here. I said, I told you I was going to be here. So we go through the whole season. I'm fighting everybody. Boom. And Lemire went to Switzerland that year. He went to Lausanne. And he played over there for that year. And their season finished. And he came back to Montreal. So every day we went over the Cabernet for lunch, the team. And we're over there one day. And um, Lemire's there. He's sitting there with Larry Robinson. I sit down. And all of a sudden, uh, I see Lemire talking with Larry. And I guess he says to Larry, he said, who's the kid in Ireland? The kid from, you know, is doing all the fighting. And then Larry introduced him to me. He says, hey, Jacques, uh, Chris Nyland, new member of the team. I say, hey, Jacques, Chris Nyland. And he looks at me, he goes, Anak. He said, Tabanak, it's you, the kid from Boston. You said you were going to be here. I told you I was going to be here. And we sat there and talked all, like all afternoon. It was unbelievable to be able to. Um, to interact with him. And we, we became fast friends. And he never forgot that with me when he coached me later. And then certainly he, he gave me a job as an assistant for a year in, in New Jersey. But uh, Jock uh, was incredible to me. And it all started that day in that T-Bird. And he'll, he never forgot that. Oh, my goodness. That That's... is pretty funny. 
Well, now, Chris, talk about the Stanley Cup year, 1986. I mean, by that time, it must have meant you must have really known where you were then. Well, I must have what? Well, you must have really known where you were then. I remember everything was just kind of a blur to you and all spinning yeah. around. But the significance of this year, uh, obviously. It was just awesome to be part of a, a, you know, a group of guys that achieved that goal. I mean, it was incredible. It was a highlight of my career. Uh, you know, I don't care, care about anything I've done personal. The thing that I was most proud of was was that, to be honest with you. And it was so fun to be part of that group. The worst part about winning the Stanley Cup here in Montreal, if you only have one, people say, hey, how many cups you got? And you go, one. They go, only one? I'm like, yeah, you <laughs> only one. You know, try winning one, you son of a bitch. You know, well, I, don't like, have, I, I don't have any. And, yeah. Uh, yeah this- it, but it's like but, everybody here got four or five or, you know. 11. Like, yeah. 11, like already. But uh, I, I got a good question for you for the organization in Montreal versus other organizations. You played in a couple other ones. Uh, how important is it to them? The, the Stanley Cup is what it is, and that's all they think about. Am I correct? Or is it, you know, like other organizations – it's like, let's get to the playoffs and let's worry about that. For them in Montreal, it seems like it's Stanley Cup or bust. Um, I'm going to say yes and no. It used to be that way. I think that's changed somewhat. Um, you know, Mark Bergevin uh, had come in here and, you know, it was certainly, um, you know, he did some good things early on. He tried to win with a team that wasn't his. He tried to add to it a core that wasn't his. And it didn't work out too good. And then he just uh, went to ownership and um, said, listen, I got to retool this thing if I'm, and, and I think he's done a good job. But with the number of teams in the league now, and it's great to have that goal. I think here, when Bergman came in, and this is my take on it. I've never asked him. I can only think, and just the way being a, Observer, I've t- I talked to Bergy quite a bit that time when I see him at game, but I don't get into too much with him. But I get a feeling that here in Montreal, all that past and all that history and all that glory, he does. He kind of wants to keep the players away from it, a healthy distance from it, because I think it puts too much pressure on. Mm-hmm. I, that's what I think now. Um, Believe me. Do you think it has anything, Chris, to do with the the different age of the players today, the different the way they're brought up and everything? And is it more somewhat at times about me more than us type uh, attitude? Yeah, it could be a bit. But, you know, listen, these nowadays, you know, the business side of it is so much more. Just we started off with you made 60 grand a year your first year, you know, crazy the difference in money. So the business is so much more. The salary cap kind of has given it a level playing field. But, you, you know, this, it, the number of teams, it, it is terribly difficult yeah. to build a team and keep a team together to be able to be successful. The, the best teams that do it are able to finagle that. The salary cap, uh, bringing in guys constantly, some younger players, um, guys on, you know, first year deals that, that are able to, 
you're able to get in under the cap and have a competitive team. It's, it's really difficult to make the playoffs in the NHL today. Uh, that's why I think it's changed a little bit here in Montreal. And, Christ, you know, last time they won the Cup was the year I retired, 92. The year before I retired in 92, they won 92-93. And, yeah, they made the playoffs since, but not near what they used to do. And, you know, when, when we played, again, you could keep a team together. Our team was like, you know, you've been on teams with it. You're tight. It's like a family atmosphere. You're close. You're together. I mean, I played in the same line for like six years, Carbono and Ganey. That's ridiculous. Yeah, you, you know, so I, I think it, it has a lot to do with the number of teams in the league today and how competitive it is and the salary cap, honestly. Well, the National Hockey League is the most competitive professional league in North America by far. I mean, you've got 25 teams at any given time could win a championship if they do make the playoffs, and there's no other league that boasts that even close. So the level of competition, that's to Rick's point, and to yours also, Chris, is, yeah, once you get there, then let's just see what happens, but get there first. Whereas I mean, before, you're right, you could dominate the league with a stacked lineup. Pretty tough to do that these days and keep yeah. it together for any period of time. Yeah, well, that's why when you see uh, what Chicago did uh, recently, that's as close as you're going to see it uh, to a dynasty. And, it's, you know, you just don't see that anymore. That's why it was really um, impressive what they did. You know, Tampa Bay, they just finally won last year. We thought they were going to win the last three years, right? Tampa mm -hmm. Bay, Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay. Didn't happen. They win last year. Great. Can they do that again? We'll see. They're already... Now they're having issues with the cap. And, you know, there are some issues with the salary cap in the NHL. And I talked about it today with my partner, Sean Campbell, that, you know, here's a team, Tampa Bay, they're up against the cap now. And they're kind of getting penalized. Like, all these players they have, they've drafted them. They haven't gone out and signed these free agents. A few mm -hmm. here and there. I mean, come on. Um, last year they signed a few. But those guys weren't big up against the cap. Here's a team that drafted really well, and they can't keep their players. It was like Chicago, right? That first year they won there, who'd they lose? Dustin Bufflin. Bufflin. What a role. That guy could play forward. He could play D. He's yep. mean. He's big. He can shoot the puck. He can play the game. And, and they end up losing him because of that. So I think there's some things they could kind of, um, you know, work – work on to make that a little bit better, so, especially with teams who draft well. You get penalized for drafting well. Well, the thing, we, I've talked about it before, the length of contracts and so on, and maybe if they, they, the league comes out with a, a more balance towards the teams that drafts you, like in other words, if you're drafted by that team, they can give you an eight-year deal. And if you're not drafted by them, the most you can get from any other team is three years or something like that. Now, yeah. Balance it out so that players stay with the teams that draft them. I agree with you because, I mean, you know, you look at even, even the Leafs, I mean, you know, they're up against the cap and uh, they had to bring in some old veterans all under a million dollars. And, yeah. you know, it's very, very difficult. Yeah, it is hot. And like I was saying about Tampa, right? And I know they brought in Ryan McDonough, but he's 31 years old. He got six years left on his deal. He's making six, seven, five for the next, just under $7 million for the next six years. Like teams have to eat 
so much of those contracts. If you want to get those good players like that in free agency or sign them as free agency, free agents, or get them in trades, sign and trade, man, you're going to have to pay them to keep them. And that's what Tampa did there. And that also hurt them, you know, that, that hurt their, the players they drafted because now, um, you know, they're looking at Tyler Johnson, guy like that kind of, you know, he could be gone. Alex Colon, another one could be gone. Yeah. They, they need to uh, make some room. Well, they even mentioned the captain possibly if he, he could always have been made available. Stamkos. Uh, yeah. Which, hurt a lot. Which, yeah. you know, I can, as much as you don't want to, think that could happen or shouldn't you think about listen this guy been hurt mm -hmm. a lot he's a great player yeah. a sniper but he's proven to be pretty fragile over the course of his career and mm -hmm. last year they basically won without him yep. yeah well, that's, that's 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 one thing for sure is that they did win without him he only played a minute and or was it Mike a minute and 36? Yeah, well, but what a minute and 30 seconds? <laughs> three minutes, yeah. it's three minutes actually played, but the what a three minutes it was, though. Yeah, well, yeah. He, scored, he scored that goal, but you, you know, it's it's it, he has had a lot of injuries, and and I know what that's like at the end of my career. I the, the injuries I did started, too. started piling up, and it's just like it's it, you can't even hardly get out of bed, yeah. let alone go to go on the ice and, and play well. And uh, it just comes a time where your body just says. You can't do it anymore. Hey, you know what? I When I look at that goal and we talk about it, I'm convinced, convinced that he tore that hockey hernia again mm -hmm. when Twisting. he jumped up after the goal. I'm convinced. Yeah, it's probably, you're probably right. And, uh, you know, he was pretty excited. He probably, he probably left the ground about that yeah. high. With yeah, and his hands went up. Like, you put... It, like, I had the hockey hernia. I know what that's like. I had the surgery. I flew to Vancouver to get it. And I was really – I took my time with it. I had it in the uh, end of the season, so I had all summer to recoup. And, boy, it felt felt great when I come back. But um, I'm convinced when he jumped up there, um, that's, he, he pulled it again. That's Funny, probably a I good a, point. Yeah, I yeah. had a hernia myself, Chris, but it was when I was coaching. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't know what it was from but I ended up with a hernia and then sitting on the bus I had to tuck it, it in and, and get into a comfortable position and then I, I, I eventually had to go have surgery at the end of the season but traveling on the bus for 13 hours or something was pretty difficult when you got a hernia yeah, That's I had that problem on the bus too I always had to tuck it in when I sat down the seat now Chris January 27th, 1988. Let's get back to talking a little bit about where you were traveling to. Now, you were moved to the New York Rangers. I mean, the hockey gods are probably thinking of all places to get traded to. First off, Montreal drafts you, our tribal. And then the second probably worst place to go would be for rivalry for Bostonians would be New York. And there yeah. you are off to the Rangers. How did that all well, take place that day? I, I That almost broke me. Now, I never, once I came to Canadian, like I told you, I'm extremely loyal. Um uh, to family, friends, and certainly my hockey team, uh, my teammates. And that uh, I was devastated when that happened. I don't know how guys do it. I just don't. Everybody says, oh, it's part of the game. It's the business. Oh, yeah? Up your ass with that one with me because, um, like, I just – I never wanted to play with another team uh, once I came to Canadians and once I established myself here. Um, I had a – 
I made a deal with myself early on that I was never going to let a coach tell me or even make the inference that I should go out there and fight. Now, listen, I know coaches, they're going to put me on the ice in situations, stuff like that. I had a coach, Jacques Lemaire, who took me out of those situations. Mm -hmm. So there's a, a respect thing there going on with me. Well, I'll respect you. You respect me. You're going to disrespect me. Well, see you later. And I had that happen with um, the coach here at the time, Jean Perron. He went around the room in Hartford. Uh, started, we we're going through a tough time, losing some games. And uh, Jean went around the room to everybody. He came to me and he said, hey, Chris Nyland, when is the last time you had a fight? And I said, uh, what do you know about fighting? You, huh? you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to stick up for your mother if someone grabbed a pocketbook. I give it to him. And uh, anyway, he wasn't happy with that. I did it in front of everybody. And um, I remember going back, uh, played that night, and then went to Buffalo. And Jacques Leperrier, well, I went to practice that morning. I had a different jersey on. I wasn't with my line for the first time, Ganey and Nile, uh, uh, Ganey and Carbonell. And I went back to the hotel, had lunch. I, I, I just knew something was coming. I, uh, I, I, was, uh, I was having a hard time. Anyway, I got back to the room and uh, Jacques Leperrier called me, assistant coach. He said, hey, knock. I said, what's up, Lappy? He said, uh, listen, uh, the coach, uh, he want to talk with you down his room. Uh, I said, hey, Lappy, listen, you know I love you. I respect you. I said, if the fucking coach wants to talk to me, Tell him to get on the phone and call me himself. I hung up and two minutes later, he called me. And he said, ah, Chris, I'm the, yeah, what's up? He goes, oh, uh, can you come down to the room? I want to talk with you about your ice time. So I'm like, okay. I walked down the room. The door's wide open. And I walk in. I said, so what's up? He said, oh, uh, Serge is on the phone. And I was like, oh, my heart dropped, you know. And I got on with Sir, and he said, ah, big boy, I'm going to trade you. And I said, where'd you trade me to? And he said, um, St. Louis. I said, Serge, I don't want to go to St. Louis. I don't even want to leave the Canadians, but I ain't going to St. Louis. He said, well, where do you want to go? And I said, I'd like to go to Boston. He said, I can't do that. And I knew Phil uh, kind of always liked me always talked to me when I was down there. I'd say hi and bye and friendly. And New York was close to Boston, my family and stuff. So I, I said, listen, can I go to the Rangers? And he had already traded me to St. Louis. He said, let me call you back. And he did. Now, Big Surge, um, I talked to him afterwards. And I, I love Surge. And Surge, Pat Burns was in the minors at the time. And Serge told me, he said, oh, you know, I didn't think Pat was ready. It was either you or the coach. And, you know, I just didn't think Pat was ready. Although Pat was ready two months later. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> so don't bullshit me, sir. But I put Serge in a bad spot. I, the way I look at it now, and I did. Uh, I, I wish he would have chose me over that. Because honestly, the John Perron, he got to stand on the cup as a coach, but he's a meathead. And he just said it didn't understand the game couldn't yeah. it, it was crazy but anyway i i put that behind me with him but he is a meathead and he 
um, anyway, I ended up going to New York and it, I, I was devastated. Honestly, I, 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 it almost broke me. Uh, I didn't allow it to though. The one thing that saved me was that I stayed true to myself. I always said I was going to never let someone do that to me. And that was my only saving grace. And the fact that I was, I went on and, uh, you know, I did my job. I stuck up for my teammates. I was always there. My teammates, they needed me in New York. There's no question. Uh, playing uh, in the Patrick division there, Philadelphia, used to push them around all the time. And, and then I, you know, I went on to Boston. But like I said, it almost broke me. It didn't. And, you know, it just wasn't the same. I, I, I always found myself kind of measuring everything to the Canadians because everything was done first class. It was the best. I loved it. It's all I knew was a pro. So it was hard for me to ever move on from that. It was We, we could have used you in Toronto during that time, Chris. <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Now, Chris, you it's finally funny go how home you get welcomed. <laughs> We would have welcomed. We would have taken you for sure. It's funny how um, people welcome you in when you you play that style of game. But anyway, we would we would have taken you. Um, the you go back to Boston, finally go home. Now, what was that day like for you? And then once you started playing there, was it everything you would imagine it would have been playing for your hometown? No, it was like a, getting a fucking root canal for two years. Um, <laughs> I went back. I remember my father telling me, "Don't come back here because." I had, um, I tried to make a, well, I had a verbal agreement with the GM at New York at the time. And I, I hurt my knee there. I broke my arm twice. I had the hockey hernia. And he had promised to sign me a contract. When it came time, he mm -hmm. backed off. and uh, So I said, listen, you don't want to honor the verbal agreement. I said, I'm out of here. I'm, I don't want to play here anymore. I'm done. Trade me. He begged me to stay. He said, the fans are going to go nuts. They're going to hang me, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I don't care. You went back on your word. You said, we're gonna, you're going to sign me a contract, a three-year deal, and it's not happening now. And I want to go. He, want, he tried to backtrack. I wouldn't let him. Anyway, I said, I want to go to Boston. He did it. And in uh, reverence to him, thank you. Uh, he, he kept his word on that end. And... Uh, I went back home. Uh, I remember the first night, I was nervous as all hell. I was sitting next to Ray Bork and Ray's there, knuckles. Come on, will you calm down? You're like a goddamn rookie. He said, you're like this for every game? I said, no, I'm nervous. I said, my hometown, I, people gonna accept me here after all the bullshit, you know? Uh, they, you know, 17,000 people, nylon socks, nylon socks, you know, all that, all, all the years of all the crazy stuff that happened down there and, um, Sure. And, I mean, and Ray said, don't worry, they're gonna, don't worry. And I, I still, I had to hear it and see it uh, for myself. And yeah, when I come out, it was unbelievable. It was crazy uh, that I, you know, they, they said, okay, welcome home. But, you know, it was tough for me there. But first year was great. And then I broke my ankle playing basketball uh, with the boys out in the parquet. Crazy. I ended up screws in my ankle. Couldn't go to the all-star game. Um, which was because I was planning on winning that car. Uh, you know, you kidding me? I was going to win that car and give it to my mother. And that's all I had in my mind. Then I broke my ankles. Ah, I was pissed. But, um, you know, I, I, I like that Milbury did that. Now, was I an all-star? No. 
Would Brian Scrulin all stop? No. But ask any any guy on our team if they didn't want us on our team. Um, you know, and, and, and Milbury, you know, he he could have just picked guys from the Bruins, but he, you know, he went and picked a guy from Montreal too, which was pretty cool. Everybody gave him gave him the business. And it's the same like Milbury that everybody gave the business to when he was he was shouting about Allen Allen Eagleson. Shut up, Milbury. You know, sure, you're making waves. And Mike Mike Milbury was right. He was right. But again, my time in Boston, you know, I was kind of glad I went there. But I'll be honest, it was like getting a freaking root canal. You know, they did some shady things. Harry used to, you know, push the buttons there all the time. I know my second year there, Rick Bonus was there, who was a nice guy, who I did it. Um, uh, they put him in charge and you know, they do a thing there in training camp. You're on the A squad or the B squad. I was on the B squad. You know, I ain't Ray Bork. I ain't Cam Neely, but I've been around as long as them. I put my time in. They put me on the B squad. I kind of rubbed my nose in the crap. I, I, I kind of felt like, oh, now nah, they're going to get back at me. So <laughs> we start the season. The Bruins always start with that long road trip. They play two games at home and go on the road. I didn't play the first two games at home. And then we went on like a six-game road trip. The circus comes to town. Didn't play one game. I'm riding the bike. I'm doing all the extra. And I remember the last game, Chicago Stadium. Um, I go in the warm-up. And no, you're not going. I get on the bike. I'm pedaling. Alan Stewart and Lyndon Byers were doing all the fighting. Great. Okay? I'm not playing. The writing's on the wall. So bonus come down after warm up and I'm, I'm pedaling the bike. He goes, I'm really proud of the way you're dealing with this. I'm like, you know, screw you. Cause it, this wasn't coming from him. It was coming from Sinden and Milbury. And it really pissed me off. And I know that Rick won the job and he, and he is a great guy, but he, he was being a puppet for them. And uh, it pissed me off. And anyway, Okay, I'll just keep working my butt off. I'll get my chance. Well, <laughs> come time to get my chance. What happened? We got home from that road trip. Alan Stewart got in his car. He packed his car up with all his stuff. And he quit hockey. He went back to, I don't know, out west where he was from. He had it with hockey. Didn't want to fight anymore. Enough's enough. And that day in practice, Lyndon Byers broke his ankle. <laughs> So all of a sudden, we go practice, blah, blah, blah. And Rick Bonus um, had me on the line. He comes in after practice. I'm sitting in. He comes over to me. He goes, hey, Knuckles, you ready to go? You ready to go tonight? I said, Rick, go fuck yourself. Exactly what I said to him. He said, what? I said, you heard me. I said, yeah, you know, you expect me to go through a wall for you now? the way you treated me here at the beginning of the season. Like I said, I, I you know, the, the B team not playing one game on the road trip. And now because you don't have a couple guys that can go out there and fight for you and for the team. Now you want me. See you later. So that was it. So play. I didn't, and I didn't play that night <laughs> and I, he didn't play me and probably it went on for about five days and then joe fitzgerald the writer for the boston herald irishman uh 
he he wrote an article in the Herald saying Mike Milbury got to get off his ass and settle this thing between Nyland and the coach. Bonus. So he wrote the article, and then Milbury finally calls me in and sits down with Rick, and, and Mike said, "Not fine. You can't tell a coach to go fuck himself." I said, well, <laughs> "You know, you can shit on me, and you can disrespect me, but I can't disrespect him. I don't buy that." But you know, I'll put I'll put it behind us if, if you're willing to do that. Sure, we'll do it. I shook Rick's hand, and we played New Jersey that night, and Rick Bonus played me. Ah, oh Christ! I must have played 18 minutes. I was dead. <laughs> I was. I was. I. I was dead. But I scored two goals. Not <laughs> a bing. Uh, and I didn't have a fight, but I scored two goals. The end of the game, I was like, I, I don't know how some guys can play that much, <laughs> but again, it was uh, it was incredible. And then you know I got put on, you know the year went on, and then uh, I I I'll be honest with you, I called Serge Avad. I said, hey, the waiver wire was up. I called. I said, get me out of here, please. They were put putting on waivers anyway. I called Serge. I said, will you get me out of here and pick me up? And Serge waited. Uh, the waiver wire is done at three. He and I didn't get picked up. I mean, that son of a bitch said he picked me up. You know, blah blah blah. And he picked me up about, I think, with ten seconds left before three o'clock. And uh, I was back to Montreal. And Pat Burns. And I'm thinking, Jesus, like Pat said, Jesus, I don't know why Serge ever moved you. I you. Because I would have been perfect for Pat Burns, right? Of course. Oh, God. And anyway, I was there, and that was Pat's last year, too, in, in, in Montreal. He went on to Toronto, and, and Knuckles uh, went on. I <laughs> went out to Pasha. Well, now, Chris, that, I mean, not, on a more serious note now, you speak very openly about your addictions over, over your career. What do you mean? I've been serious the whole time here. <laughs> yes, I have been. Now, um, <laughs> And Squid, you can join this too, because I, yeah. you and I talked about this off air beforehand. Where do you think this all sort of began for you, Chris? Now, you did come from, you're a high-profile player, playing in a high-profile city, temptations, all those type of things from people trying to get close to players like yourself and your teammates. What Did that have some influence in you in bringing it all about? Nah, not really. Not really. Uh, you, listen, um, Addiction, alcoholism, some, again, it's deemed a disease. Um, certainly it is in my family, mm -hmm. but um, every person's different in the sense that uh, certain things happen in our lives like that uh, can kind of lend to you going down that path. Now, some of it has to do with childhood trauma, some can do with chemical imbalances, depression, stuff like that. That's why I have a tough time when people always point to guys who fight in the game and they try and make the correlation between fighters and suicide, fighters and addiction and alcoholism. But it doesn't matter who you are, what you did. It, it, it's what happened with me. And, it, 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 and I think a lot of people, it encompasses your whole life. It has as much to do with your childhood, your teenage years, your formative years, into your professional years as an athlete in after hockey. And um, 
so it's a combination of all those things. And um, quite frankly, uh, yeah, it happened to me. Uh, it's part of my life. Uh, do I wish that that didn't happen? Of course. But the mm -hmm. fact of the matter is it did. And it is part of my life. I take ownership of it. Um, and uh, I understand it more than I ever did as I sit here today. Um, and I embrace the fact that, um, yeah, it was great. I was able to survive it. Uh, it. It's nothing I'm proud of, but I'm proud of how I got myself out of it. I'm, I'm happy how I, I've changed my life. I'm basically the same person. Um, uh, I have found ways to do some things better in my life. Uh, there's no question about it. Uh, I have much better uh, coping skills today than I did before. Uh, healthy boundaries today more than than ever. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've got control of that part of my life where once it, it was totally out of control. And, and yeah, so it, it's a good thing. Well, was there a part during your career when you thought this was getting away from you and it was getting you out of control? Not at all. You know, listen, uh, <clears throat> I grew up in Boston. I grew up in an environment where uh, there was a lot of drinking, a lot of drugs around. Uh, I wasn't a big drug guy. I smoked pot. I dabbled here and there growing up uh, in different things. But, you know, I used to hang in the street corner of my friends. We drank all the time. We drank St. Patrick's Day. We drank every day. We whatever. <laughs> Celebrate everything. And... <laughs> And then I played hockey too. And what do we do after hockey as kids? We drank beers. We could jump in the car and drive from the rink back up to Boston. We're playing down in Hingham or somewhere and we have a cooler full of beers. Let's go boys. That's what it was. I got to the NHL. There was a really, uh, uh, you know, a drinking environment in the NHL at the time. Uh, you know, I grew up in an environment with a lot of drinking in the household. Um, you know, my, my, I love my dad to death, but he drank every day. Like, you know, he'd come home. I'd see him after a hard day's work. What would he do? Come home and have a cocktail. <laughs> it's like, what do you do after a hard day's work? You have a cocktail. Mm -hmm. Monkey see, monkey do. And, you know, I, and again, it's not a blame thing. It's just, it's reality. Uh, and in alcoholism addiction is transgenerational. Uh, it gets passed down. And I've gone so far as to look back at my family over in Ireland. Uh, and <laughs> I look at the arrest records and what they were arrested for uh, back in that little village in Ireland. And hello, <laughs> no, fighting and, and, and drunk and disorderly. Hello. <laughs> and here, here it comes, it travels across the sea and the Atlantic Ocean and lands in Boston. and. It continues. So until somebody in that uh, family tree uh, tries to break that cycle, the cycle will continue. And um, just because I stopped drinking and stopped doing drugs doesn't mean that everybody I'm associated with in my family, the cycle's broken, it's never going to happen again. That's not the case. But you have a better chance of breaking the cycle if you have somebody in that family tree who grasps the the uh, the way to deal with alcoholism and addiction and is able to live with it every day in a healthy way those are the things that um 
honestly, I'm, I'm proud of today that, you know, I was able to overcome this and, and learn a whole lot of good things about life um, um, because of it. Well, I got to say, Chris, I, uh, well, I commend, I commend you on that for sure, because I mean, I know myself, I've gone through it and looking back at my family on my mother's side, there was a lot of alcoholism and obviously I got it. Uh, as you were talking about, it gets passed down and it certainly did in my case. And I, of course I you know, we came in to the NHL at a time where it was like, that was the thing to do was the drink and so what do you do? You drink. And then of course, you know, I, I ended up with anxiety that I had no idea I had. And then more drinking and more drinking and more drinking until, as you mentioned, get, it gets out of control. And as you said, you know, someone asked me like, what are you most proud of the, you know? And I said, well, I'm more proud of the fact that I've overcome drinking twice and than I am scoring 50 goals. And because I think, I think overcoming alcoholism and, and quitting drinking or getting off drugs or whatever it might be is harder than scoring 50 goals. No. You know, but I can say like you today, everything is much clearer. And, you know, I feel like I'm in a good place and I'm, and I'm happy. And, uh, you know, when you're drinking, you don't feel like that. Misery. Yep. Misery. And, and, you know, and I, congrats on your sobriety too. Uh, I think it's awesome. Um, you know, I had heard through the grapevine, you know, you hear through the grapevine here and there that um, people, um, you know, stop drinking, which is a good thing. Um, I know it's, um, it's not an easy thing to do. And um, when I, when I think back um, of my, my addiction, when I was at the height of my addiction, it's not easy at all. I, I got on the painkillers. I went from painkillers to heroin. I was shooting heroin. Like, I'm like, how the hell did I get here? And a lot of people say, oh my God, you're shooting heroin. But listen, I was surviving, okay? And when you're on painkillers and you're on opiates and they, the teeth go in, the claws go in and, and you can't get them out. It is the most, people say, oh, just stop drinking. Just stop doing heroin. Just stop doing the painkillers. It is so easy to say, but so terribly difficult to do. And I say that the painkillers, when you didn't have them, the pain was ridiculous, the pain through your body. The same with the heroin. And it's basically the same stuff. And the one thing with the pills, at least you know what you get in the heroin. You don't always know what you're getting. So there's a big danger in that. I overdosed a couple of times, almost kicked the bucket. Um, and, um, you know, I've gotten past that. But I remember when I first went to treatment and I didn't have a problem when you come in with a group of people and you identify, say, I'm Chris, I'm an alco alcoholic. I'm Chris, I'm a drug addict. I always said, I'm Chris, I'm a, a drug addict. Cause I knew I was a drug addict. Like I was like, but I, I did not accept the fact that I was an alcoholic. Cause I said, listen, I could always drink. I was, yeah, I was a good drinker, you know? And the drugs brought me down really fast. You know, there was a good year and a half I was on the heroin and that was it. Uh, and I went off the treatment, but like I said, I identify as a drug addict, but I couldn't as an alcoholic. 
And then my, um, my pal in treatment, uh, Ed, who was my counselor, said to me, listen, Chris, how come in group you identify as a drug addict, but you don't as an alcoholic? I said, well, I'm not an alcoholic. I, I can Ed said, come on, Chris. Because when you stop, when they, if you go in there for heroin, you go there for cocaine, whatever you go for, you can't just pick and choose what you're going to stop. Mm -hmm. Like my drug of choice, yes, mm -hmm. it was heroin, it was opiates, but it's just as bad when I go the other way, if I really look at it. And Ed said to me, well, do, really, do get honest with yourself and, and take a look at your drinking over the years, how much you drank, the problems it caused in your life. You know, I didn't get up in the morning and drink every morning, no. So I always thought, oh, that's what an alcoholic is. Because the mm -hmm. heroin, I had to get up first thing in the morning. I had to do the heroin or the painkillers or I couldn't get through the day. And some people are like that with booze. I wasn't like that with booze. But that doesn't mean I'm not alcoholic. I drank alcoholically. Mm -hmm. I could not drink for five days. But boy, give me the next two, you'll see an alcoholic. <laughs> and, and, you know, it... it it's what it is. And like, I finally realized that, yeah, I am an alcoholic too. I got honest with myself. I said, listen, you know, yeah. Okay. The heroin was bad. The booze is just as bad, Chris. And I accepted that. Um, and anything that takes me out of myself, anything that I put in my body that helps me to self-medicate is not a good thing for me. And, um, I, I'm just, like I said, Rick, you said you're proud of what you did. And, I'm so happy to be a sober man today, a sober oh, man yeah, and, and a clean. It's, it's awesome. It's a great feeling. And knowing that you beat the beast, so to speak, uh, first of all and foremost, it is really, really nice to feel that way. But just to wake up every day and know, like, you know, I mean, yes, I, one day at a time, I, I understand that. And I do kind of take it one day at a time. But... Every day I wake up and I feel good and I'm not hung over. I feel blessed that I was able to overcome what I did. Yeah. And, and, and kudos to you for doing it. Not a lot of people, a lot of people do do it, but do they really like there's difference between mm -hmm. getting sober. Okay. And, and, and somebody who, who just stops drinking, but doesn't change anything. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You get yeah. the people that, that, um, and I'm not, I don't sit in judgment, but you know, if I never did the work on me as a person and some of the things that those, those, um, you know, things that were not good in my life, if I didn't correct those things, if I didn't take that inventory of my life and say, all right, Chris, this, you have to clean up this, you have to uh, mm -hmm. get better at, uh, this, you can't do anymore. Uh, take that inventory and make the and and recognize what's wrong with you those character defects and correct them and become a better person well you know, if you don't if you don't do that you're going to go back to the drugs or the alcohol and question of time it's yeah. a question of time and yeah. I, i'm blessed that i have a wonderful woman in my life um jamie who um she she's a sober woman in my life and i gotta tell you um, it's awesome to be able to have somebody in my life who is the same as me that way because uh, we're able to lean on each other and um, uh, 
learn a lot from each other. And I finally, finally have a really healthy relationship with the person I love. Um, not that I didn't before love anybody before people in my life, but to have your partner in life um, be sober too, and both years benefit from the fact that you're sober, both years, it's awesome. Uh, like I, I couldn't be happier in my life. I've never well, been so happy in my life. Well, uh, just just to let you know, I got a lovely wife too, and she doesn't drink. Although she wasn't an alcoholic, but she stopped drinking, and uh, we're going to be married forty years in June. I just I can't believe that well, forty well, years. It's it's I'm blessed, uh, and uh, I got to say that helped me a lot too when I was going through those battles. Yeah, it's not. Again, it's not an easy thing um, uh, to go through alone. That's why you, when you go through it, you don't have to go through it alone. Yeah, there's yeah. always someone there to reach your hand out. And, you know, I can't keep what I have unless I'm willing to be able to give it away. And I love to work with people. I have over the course of my time back here in Montreal through my website. So many people have reached out to me. Um, and I've gotten so many letters back from people who either saw the documentary well, I've reached out to personally, met with personally, and helped um, kind of um, get that that sober life going for them. And um, to me, that's a great feeling to be able to help other people who suffer from the same disease I do. Uh, just it's a great feeling. It, well, I think know, the, on that point. Sorry, Mike. Just no, quickly, no, go, go. Um, you know, you talk about helping other people and it's not the easiest thing in the world to do because not everybody is open to help, to getting help. And I had a call from Larry Landon, uh, you know, Larry, who's a, yeah. with the PHPA and there was a friend of his uh, whose son, I think was 19 years old and was on drugs and alcohol and he was getting ready to go away to rehab. So he asked me if I would go and visit. So I sat with him and his dad for like two hours. And I talked to him a little bit. I talked to him kind of how to prepare him for when he got in there and what he was going to go through and everything else. And then what he had to do when he came back. So I got a nice phone uh, uh, email from the gentleman, uh, the young man's old, uh, father. He's been home three months now. He's sober. He's working extremely hard at, at staying that way. Uh, he's only 19 years old. Keep that in mind. And this kid hopefully will have a future now. Um, and it wasn't just because of me, but the fact that I was able to have an input, period, before he went away to rehab and maybe help him realize where, where he was going and what he was going to have to do to get sober, uh, to me, like, I mean, if I can help anybody that, uh, and I've had a couple of teammates that have tried to help that unfortunately are no longer with us. And yeah. uh, that hurts a lot, but you know what, if you, if you can help one person out of five or 10, uh, then I think, you know, you've done, you've done your job. Yeah. Well, I think the big message from all of this is that, uh, you know, I mean, again, to you two guys, uh, big credit for stepping up and, you know, admitting the issues that you have and the demons that you fought for your lives. And now you're back and you're openly speaking about it and helping other people. I think that's the first step that any listener 
listening or viewing this today or in the next little while can take away from it. And the real reality is that just because you're a professional athlete doesn't mean you don't face the same challenges that every regular guy does yeah. and every regular person. So great on you guys doing this. I, I know that your influences are influential on people in the, in the place and out in the world. And it, it's terrific that you keep this kind of work up. Now, we just have a couple of minutes left with you, uh, Knuckles, and uh, a couple of things I'd like to go through. Now, first off, um, who is one of the tougher guys, or one of the toughest guys you fought through the league? And maybe I'll give, a, I'll give you a double question here. And who besides is that? me. Besides me. Besides a squid. And who <laughs> is that? Listen, we all put our pants on the same way, although some of us have a more difficult time in the morning getting them back on. But um, uh, some of the tougher guys, God, you know, but one question I hate, somebody says, always asks me, who's the toughest guy you ever fought? I'm like, uh, here's the deal. All them guys who do that job are tough. Uh, I don't care. I never, and I'll be honest yeah. with you, I never classified them. All right, there were guys bigger. I knew this guy got longer arms. I knew this guy's a righty, he's a lefty, that kind of stuff. But I never underestimated anybody. Uh, I treated them all the same. Dave Brown, tough as nails. O'Reilly, oh, Jonathan Secord was tough. Um, big uh, Dan Maloney, uh, I fought uh, there in Toronto. Uh, sweetheart, too, of a guy. Um, you know, God, uh, Tony Twist, Stu Grimson, J Big Jim McKenzie, uh, a lot of tough guys. And uh, like I said, they all have my respect, and they certainly um, – deserve that respect. Well, what I wanted to do is I wanted to go with this question is I didn't want to ask you to identify one guy for that exact yeah. reason, because they are all tough in that field when they do take that role. But the second part of this was kind of two parts to it also was the fact that who is that? There must have been a couple of pests out there that you know why you bother me all the time and you just want to cuff them across the head. Or also is that guy, you know, that's trying to make a name for himself by coming after somebody like yourself. Did you ever kind of give them that opportunity just to get themselves better with their coach, say? Well, Linsman was always that yappy little yappy. <laughs> yeah. and, and, like, I like Kenny. I, I met him after hockey. He's an awesome guy. I, I get along great with him. Um, but Kenny was one of them. Uh, Gary Risling was a real yippy yappa. Yeah. I couldn't stand Rizza. Uh, but he was a funny bastard when it's all said and done. Paul Baxter, another one. I threw a puck off his head. Uh, one game, split him wide open in the penalty box. He he stuck me in the eye with his stick, cut me. I tried to fight him. He turtled on me, got in the box. He said, I'm going to give you it in the other eye now. I said, oh, yeah. And I looked down, the pucks were there next to Clover Tom, frozen. <laughs> I picked the puck up. I stood up, and I fired it right off the head. Ten stitches. Then I went after him while I was getting stitched by Dr. Mulder. You ever see Paul Baxter ask him the story? You will laugh your ass off. Anyway, um, yeah, just funny. Those guys, those pests like that. Uh, Who gave you the best chirp of all those guys? Uh, Lindsman was a chirp. Uh, you know, flurry a little bit, right? Multi little feel. Um, you know. Hey, where's your bucket? What bucket? It's the one you need to carry the puck in. Um, you know, just stupid stuff. Now, um, so did you ever give? Now, there's guys out there that I've heard from guys who've guys will come and challenge them, knowing that there's no way they can beat you. 
but you like to accept the challenge anyway to help the yeah, guy like, out. I had to do it all the time. Like I hated yeah. it. Like, you know, your first year, couple of years, not bad. And then, you know, here you are playing Boston in four exhibition games. Hello. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think is going to happen? And I'm playing all the games because, you know, we can't let our guys get beat up, but I got to take every idiot that comes along. You got to be there and you got to fight them. And that's what I hated about exhibition season. But again, um, it's part of it. But, uh, you know, you get there, you're there a while and it's kind of a pain in the butt to do. Well, here's one of those subjects that you, Squid, you and I've talked about this a lot on the show is that, and I'll, I'll throw this one at you, Chris, is that would you like to see more accountability in the game like there was from your era where players can't run around and take the cheap shots, the head shots and all that stuff, knowing like in your era, if you're going to do something like that, the sheriff's going to come call it. Yeah, I would like that, but you know what? I think it's, it's not going to happen. Yeah, it's not going to happen. I, I would still like to see it in a game to some extent, but I also, and, and this is no disrespect to guys who weren't the best players and could fight. I know I had a role other than fighting. I was on a really good checking line mm -hmm. um, for, for quite a few years. And I, I took so much pride in doing that. I loved that my role was defined that way. And I love scoring goals. The favorite thing for me was scoring a goal. If people think winning a fight, oh, that must have been the best. No, scoring a goal to me was the most exhilarating thing when I played the game. It really was. Or getting a nice assist or something. I, you know, not like oh, it went off my ass and then it went on Matt Snazlin's stick and he passed it to the guy. No, but making a nice play. It was it it was really really fun for me. I loved that part of it. But um, yeah, I. You know, I, I I just love the game and love that part of the game. Squid, you want to make a comment well, here? I, you know what? I I do like the game. Uh, I, I like how skilled the players are today. I mean, they all got their own skill coaches and skating coaches and whatever it is. And I, I think a lot of them are just incredible hockey players. I mean, they, they, they're, they're unbelievable. You look at a guy like Austin Matthews who, you know, this guy's got a shot as good as anybody in the league. Uh, his deception with his, his uh, the way he shows a goalie and, and shoots somewhere else. Uh, if you look back, I think it was, was it Carolina that came back where he, he did that spinorama and threw a blind pass across to Marner? Yeah. Although I, I'm pretty yeah. sure he knew exactly where he was. Uh, to me, I, I love watching that. And I don't mind seeing a 6-5 hockey game. You know, it's better than the old days when uh, the Devils uh, did their trap and won one nothing, two one every 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 damn night. I mean, yeah, it got them Stanley Cups and so yeah. on, but but it wasn't exciting. It was boring. And uh, you know, I, I like I like watching goals. I, I like watching people score goals. I guess because maybe I like doing it myself. Now, yeah, Chris. I can agree on that. I, I love seeing goal score too. It's awesome. As far as that fight part of it though, moving forward, I just, you know, it's, it's never coming back. I, yeah, they never take it out. I don't think, yeah. but you know, they'll always leave it there for them. Two guys that, that, you know, so pissed at each other, they just drop their gloves and fight. But, and, and, and I, what I was getting at before about guys who just fight, like I remember the Philadelphia game, uh, where we had to had play in the playoffs, we had to we were fighting in the warm up, right? But yes, after the warm up, we had that fight. I had that fight with Dave Brown. I fought him for like 
12 minutes. The referees weren't there. You know, we'd fight, we'd rest, we'd fight, we'd rest. He had no jersey on. But the worst part about that is I had to play the game afterward. I had to play the whole game. I had a role other than being a fighter. And I was dead tired when the game started. I, my neck was sore, my arm. I, and Dave Brown, where was he the whole game? On the bench. On the bench, yeah. Yeah, he never played. And, and no, no disrespect to him. Again, he just, that's how it was. Those are the rules then. And that's the, that was the tough part about it. Uh, and I guess if, like, I like guys like Tom Wilson. Okay? Yeah. Go play the game, you can fight. Um, you know, the guy, who's the guy? What's his name? Ryan Reeves. I love that kid. And, you know, he's an okay player, but boy, guys love having him on his team because they know the guy, no matter what, even though it's not a big fight game now, he's going to have your back. You're going to have your back. Now, Chris, just uh, before we wrap up here, I want to thank you for joining us. Just a little bit about, uh, you know, from your personal side again, you did have a connection through family to a pretty famous Bostonian who was not really a law-abiding citizen through yeah. marriage. And he was a hockey fan and a good fan of yours. And he used to cut him some games in Montreal and Weddy Bulger. Uh, Bulger. Yeah, um, yeah. How did that all develop? Well, it was through relations through yeah, your wife. Yeah, just right? uh, through marriage, you know. And yeah, I had a relationship with him. Um, you know, some people over the course of... Uh, the years talking about that or people bring it up. I usually, um, I, I, sometimes I don't like going there because people um, seem to have something wrong with it. Here's the deal. I married into that. I understood what he did for a living. I did not take part in any of that. He was always good with me. It's not like I condone what he did. Um, you know, and he, he ultimately paid the price uh, not long ago uh, at the age of 90 years old in a wheelchair. He got beaten to death in prison. And, you know, you know, my, I remember my ex-wife uh, asking me, you know, is it, is it wrong that I feel bad that, you know, for someone who caused so much pain and misery in other people's lives that I feel bad for what happened to them? I said, no, it's not because it wasn't all pain and misery in your life. You had a different relationship with that person that other people didn't. And, you know, people can stand back and sit in judgment. I, I don't sit in judgment of people. Do your thing. You know, I, I never like sitting in judgment of anybody to begin with. Sit back and pick other people apart. Screw that. Um, I don't have a problem with it. I don't have a problem with um, saying that uh, I had a, a, a relationship with him and he was always good to me. Um, I visited him after he got arrested in California, uh, spent uh, a half hour with him. And um, yeah, he, he paid the price. Um, hey, he was a hockey fan. Yeah. He could be a hockey fan. Yeah, he was a Canadians fan. And he was a fan. So now there is a story that when he was arrested, one of the surprise things was they found a ring, which was, apparently was yours. Is that true? No. No. Um, I had two Stanley Cup rings. I only won the cup once. I gave my father my ring Yep. when I won the cup. And after Serge traded me, he brought me in one summer. Uh, the summer after, I was doing my golf tournament for um, uh, the Children's Hospital. 
Mm-hmm. And he called me in and sat down and he had another ring for me because he knew I, he gave mine to my dad and he felt guilty for trading me. No. Um, so I, those are the two rings. Uh, I have one of them and my father has since, who's still alive, gave the other ring to my son. Uh, Jim had enough money to go, um, and I call him Jim. Uh, Jim had enough money to um, buy everybody a ring. Yeah, God, that's good. That's a good enough answer right there. So, so he, probably, he went and got his own. He got his own. Well, yeah. that that was actually kind of a, yeah, that was the story. Now, no, apparently he was quite a fan. He used to come to the games and take some of the guys out for dinner and stuff like that. And anyway, uh, thanks for sharing that with us. Now, just for you, I know we know you've got your show. Do you want to give you a couple seconds here to plug your show off the cuff on TSN every day from 12 till 3? Yeah, I don't want to plug my show. Yeah, yeah, why bother? Don't yeah. listen. None of you is listening. It's not worth listening. No, it's fun. Uh, you know, I have a great partner, and uh, we, we do a have lunch. Uh, Sean Campbell, myself, and Tony Marinaro, and then off the cuff, my show uh, and Sean Campbell's show uh, is between one and three. Sean and I have a great working relationship. Uh, really, Sean loves sports, and he's really good at what he does. And we've, we, Sean knows me. He knows how to press my buttons, get me going at different times. We, you know, we have fun. I have fun with it. It's difficult now a little because of, you know, the situation with sports. We, you know, we do the football. We preview NFL games on the weekend. We, we recap them on Mondays. Uh, we do some of the other sports here and there. But, you know, it's hockey-centric. And without hockey, uh, who's happy? Not many people in Canada are happy without hockey. Amen to that. Squid, well, you got anything for Chris before we go? Well, Knuckles, I just want to say thanks for coming on. And uh, you know what? It's uh, when I first heard about, you know, your problems and so on. And of course, going through the same stuff myself. I, when I heard that you had gotten sober and, and were doing great, had your own uh, radio show and everything, I thought, you know what? That's fantastic. I said, I played against them for most of my career tough son of a bitch. I don't think we never actually had a fight, uh, but I saw you beat the shit out of a lot of guys. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? I would have loved to have had that guy on my team. And, uh, but I'm glad you uh, got sober. Uh, I'm sure as hell glad I did. And, uh, you know, the best for the rest of your life and, and same, you know, with your career and everything else. Uh, good for you. Well, I appreciate it. Mutual respect for you. Uh, certainly a, a great play in your own right. I'm glad that you got sober, changed your life around um, to be happy. Uh, you know, hockey, when we look at it, it's a really small portion of our life. Oh, yeah. And it goes by so quick. You don't realize it when you're in it. When you're out of it, you do. And um, there's a lot of life to live after hockey. And um, it's awesome you were able to change your life around. And a lot of respect for what you did as a player. Um, you know, 50 goals, uh very difficult to do in the NHL. I don't care what era. And um, you, you did it. And you, you, you were damn good at that job. So, uh, you know, it's it's all behind us now that. And I'm, I'm just glad that you're in the same boat as me and you're a sober man. And we only have what? We only have today. Remember yeah. that? Yeah, absolutely. Not yesterday, not tomorrow. We only got today. Well, that's fantastic, Chris. We want to thank you so much for uh, being so candid and being so open with us. Uh, you're a terrific guest. Uh, all the best to you and your show going moving forward. And uh, listen, thanks for joining us and uh, we'll talk to you soon.
All right, Mike, great meeting you. Take care, my friend. And uh, Rick, see you, pal. Okay, Chris, take care. All All the best. Squid, we've had some guests, and then we've had some guests. Uh, you know, nothing against anybody else, but I don't think they make them any better than Chris Knuckles and Island. Well, I mean, he's amazing. And, uh, you know, he grew up probably in the toughest area of Boston. Yeah. Uh, as he mentioned, a lot of fighting on the streets and stuff like that. And then uh, an NHL career, and then eventually drug and uh, alcohol and uh, he was able to overcome that and you know you got to give the guy a lot of credit um there's probably been a lot of curveballs thrown his way in his life and uh you know he's gone on and accomplished what he has and he's sober and he's happy and uh he's got his own radio station and uh and i gotta tell you he was a good player he was a good skater uh he could shoot the puck he could make plays and he was on a good check-in line with Carbonell and Gamey. So uh, give him credit for that because uh, that's not something that a lot of players like to do. And, and you know, they say, you know, I'm not a checker. I, I was the best player of my – we talked about this so many times. Yes. They're, you're, they're all the best players growing up on their teams all the way up. Some people have to adjust and take different roles. And, uh, and obviously he did. Well, and he's one of those guys that had to make every team he played on. And he that that work ethic carried him right through to the National Hockey League. And he knew what he had to do to stay there, and he did it. And, yeah. you know, what I really admire about him is, is during our conversation is the fact that he made no excuses for succumbing to the demons that he did. And it was he wasn't blaming it. I, I mean, can you imagine a high-profile guy like him walking around Montreal. I mean, I can almost guarantee you they never paid for a drink or a dinner, I mean, or anything there. And the people throwing themselves at him in a city like that with, you know, women and drugs and alcohol and, and anything you want thrown at you, mm-hmm. the temptations are pretty high. They're pretty high in every sporting world or every city. So, you know, just to a place like that, it's even magnified even more. And then with somebody with the problems that he had, it just gets even more accelerated. So... Uh, kudos to him for overcoming those, uh, you know, demons that he had. And now he speaks very openly about it. And he, and like yourself, and they're now speaking to people out there that may have similar issues that can learn from it. And I think that's the key thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I always look at it and I think, okay, if I can, you know, if there's 10 people and if I can help one of them become sober, then, then I've, I've done my job. You know, I saved one person's life and, uh, you know, so, I mean, it's not that I go out of my way and, and, you know, go and do it all the time, but you know, there, there has been times where I've, I've tried to do it. It didn't work. There's times where I did it and it has worked. So, you know, there's some people can overcome it. Some people can't. But if somebody wants to get better and they listen to somebody like you or listen to somebody like Chris or Jim McKinney, whoever we, whoever we can bring into the equation, they're going to get some help and they're going to try and improve and they're going to improve. But if they don't want the help, I don't care who's talking to them. They're not going to get better. No, it doesn't matter if if you don't want help and you don't want a a better life and you don't want to, you know, have a, have a good life, then it doesn't matter who's talking to you because you're just not going to respond and you're just going to continue doing, you know, like the, what do they say? The, uh, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over yeah. and over again, expecting different results. Well, that's kind of what alcoholism is like. And, uh, you know, cause you do the same thing over and over and over and you're thinking that things are going to change, but they don't. They don't. 
No. no, and it's the same as why a lot of the hospitals and that they see this all the time. And people, when they get in those situations, will tell you exactly what you want to hear. And they'll mm -hmm. say it verbatim every time. And they'll play right to the situation. And that's why a lot of the centers that help these people will not admit anybody that's forced to go in, but rather they have to want to go yeah. in or they won't take them. And that yeah. we've, I've, we've had problems in our family that same situation. I know I've been begging at them. Why can't, because they'll just walk out the door tomorrow. Yeah. And, you know, unless they want to be here, they're not going to stay here. So the first step to getting better is admitting the issue. And I think, you know, with guys like you and Chris, as I said, and even Jimmy McKinney and some of the other guys that we've talked about, keep doing this mission or your mission statement, as we'll call it on that stand. I, I, I think that the world will be a better place for it if we have people speaking openly we are today. Yeah, no, there's no question. Uh, you know, we need more people you know, realizing that, you know, it is a disease and it's, it's hereditary. And, uh, you know, Chris spoke about it openly and, and I believe it, it truly is. And so, I mean, if you look at your family background and you see that, um, you know, and I'm very, I guess, lucky that my two boys didn't get that because, you know, they're able to go out socially and, and drink and not overdo it and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, in a lot of ways, I'm, I'm lucky that I didn't pass it on to them. That's great. I mean, and that, that, that's terrific. Well, we've come to that point in the show again there, Squid, where we've got to call it a day. Uh, we, as we said, we've introduced a couple of new twists to the show, the question and answer uh, segment we want to add to that. Uh, for any listeners out there that like to send us a question, send it to Mike at ultimatelyspan.com. Send your questions. We got one today from, we want to thank Jonah Thomas again for his Terrific questions. We'll look for a few more next week that we'll pull out. Hopefully uh, tomorrow. Notes. We'd love to answer questions. We love to answer questions is exactly right. So again, look for us. Uh, we're on ultimatelyspan.com. Uh, you find us on YouTube. We'll find us on all the new uh, SoundCloud uh, podcasts. Uh, we're going to be on all of those now. We're, we're, we're on uh, iTunes and Spotify and all those places. But look up Rick under Rick5. Uh, Mike Wilson, look for me under Ultimate Leafs Fan on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We're in all those spots. Looking forward to speaking to you guys next week. Everybody enjoy themselves, and we'll talk to you then. <laughs>